Hey everyone, so lovely to be with you guys. You know, winter seems like it started a month early, but I'm holding out that it's ended a month early. Imagine the weather just stays like this. Uh, knowing Cape Town, um, it's, there's another two weeks of, of um, getting beaten by storms. But let's, let's watch the space. So I get to launch a series today, Identity. And um, the Baker Encyclopedia of Psychology defines identity as the answer to the question, who am I? Who am I? So that's what we're going to talk about. <coughs> and we're going to talk about it till the beginning of December. Because it's one of the major themes of the Bible, the question to who am I? And especially who am I in, in God's eyes? My message today is two parts. Usually in our sermons, we unpack scripture. In this message, the first half, I'm going to unpack our culture. Second half, I'm going to unpack scripture. And I'm barely going to get going because by the end, you're like, okay, I'm in. I'm coming next week and the week after that and the week after that because this is really important stuff to get hold of, to discover and rediscover your identity. And uh, I was helped a bit by Tim Keller, who writes the book, Making Sense of God, and by Cole Truman, his book, The Strange New World. If you want to understand the strange world that many people say, like, the world has gone mad. Well, actually, it's become like this uh, through the efforts of elite intellectuals and activists. And uh, Cole Truman in the, the Strange New World tells the best story I've seen. He's an American philosopher, British, actually, originally, he writes an excellent book. So I've got some ideas from him. So if you're a Christian, <clears throat> I think you want to become more like Jesus, but the culture is forming you too. And I want to suggest that you understand this message well so that the culture doesn't have the pull on you that it shouldn't have. Ephesians 4 says, setting, uh, it tells us that settling our identity in Christ is the beginning of being conformed to Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, um, I'm glad you're here because I think that um, this theme of identity as the Bible teaches it is actually one of the more exciting aspects of the Christian gospel. One of the more exciting things of the Christian gospel because in the Christian gospel you get uh, the resources, supernatural resources, for a stable, empowering identity. And uh, the search for identity uh, in our modern society is one of its great themes. But how do we find ourselves? So now begins the part of my message that um, tries to unpack our culture. And roughly speaking, in the Western world, we have moved from traditional identity to the modern identity. And I'm talking here about the way that we find out who we are. Human beings have always wanted to know who they are. Well, for thousands and thousands of years, there was the traditional identity. Outside of the West, these, this is still true traditional identity. But in the Western world, the last few hundred years, but especially so in the last few decades, the traditional identity has been eclipsed by modern identity. Roughly speaking, the traditional identity says, look outward to others for your identity. Look outward to others for your identity. That's how it's always been done. That's how it's still done in maybe most parts of the world. Uh, but in the West, we have, we've come up with a new way to identity. Look inward to self for identity. Look inward to self for identity. And if I can just take a quick philosophical crash course of how we got here. The modern age has been around, what, since the 1600s, the 1700s, 
And there's roughly speaking three stages that we got from the traditional identity to modern identity. Stage one was the early Enlightenment philosophers. These philosophers, I'm thinking about Rene Descartes and um, John Locke, these guys um, basically said, there is truth, there is goodness, it's there, it's absolute. But to find it, you mustn't look to your family or to your religion or to the king, you must look inward to your reason. It was the beginning of the, the, the you know, rationalism, reasoning. You determine what's true, not by looking outward, but by looking into your brain. Use your reason. Use your reason. And uh, then stage two is followed by romanticism. And the 1700s and the 1800s, you've got Jean-Jacques Rousseau especially. And they say something similar. They say, hey, there is goodness. There is truth. It's out there. But to find it, you've got to look in. But here's where they change. Don't look to your head, your reason. Look to your heart. Look to your heart. And now it's not science or reason like the Enlightenment philosophers. It's art. It's self-expression that is the way to find this, this, this beauty. Okay? All, all good so far. Stage three, which happens in the last century and especially the last decades, is where things get interesting. Where people go, hang on. There is no absolute goodness and truth out there. All things that can be explained by natural causes. Postmodernism means we can, anybody who makes a claim to believe something, it's just a power, an attempt to, to exert power over another person. They trust no one. It's a complete skepticism. And they say there is no goodness and truth out there. But let's keep looking inward. And let's not look to our heads. Let's agree with the romantics. Let's look to the heart. And you create your own goodness, your own truth. You decide what's good. You validate yourself. You see what's happened is move from the outward to the inward. The outward to the inward. So let's keep uh, showing the differences between traditional identity and modern identity. Traditional identity, you're looking outward to others for identity, Modern identity, you look inward to self for identity. And traditional identity, desires are crucial. Desires are crucial. And, sorry, duties are crucial. I got it wrong. Duties are crucial, whereas in modern identity, desires are, are, are central. So in traditional cultures, you are your duties. So there's two forms of honor in the ancient world. Males, the highest honor you can achieve is you die in battle. Uh, the, the highest uh, identity a woman can achieve, the highest honor, have children. And in both cases, you sacrifice yourself for the tribe, for, for the greater good. Your duty, you, do, you find out what your duties are. That's your identity. They are, they are given to you. you. Your parents had these duties. You grew up, you have similar duties to your parents. This is an ordered society. You find out, am I a peasant? Am I a noble? Am I a king? You know, what am I? And then you live out your, your duties. But in modern cultures, because you're looking within and because we followed the romantics, we're looking to our desires. Another difference, traditional identity, you, you take your place in the order of things. Whereas uh, in modern identity, you create you. I create me. 
Traditional identity, others tell you who you are, they validate you, but modern identities go inside to create the self, to create the good. Another difference, traditional identities, others validate me. So you, you look out, you're like, how am I doing? Oh, you're doing great. Ah, especially we look to our parents. Modern identity, where do you get your validation? Well, from the same person that created you, you. You create you, you validate you. Another difference, traditional identity, this is my last difference here, is I make demands on myself, if needs be, to enact my identity. Modern identity, I make demands on others, if needs be, to accept my identity. So in traditional society, you're hard on yourself. You're told, I need to be a warrior. But geez, you're scared. Not a problem. You will confront yourself and you will drag yourself into battle and you will die. You will, you will make the demand on yourself to enact your identity. This is the identity that's been given to you by others. This is what's called from you. In modern culture, and we're seeing this especially uh, in the last 10 years, you are hard on others. You say, I, I, might, I know you might not like this, but this is who I am. You take it. You must recognize me. You can see the argument, no longer, you're no longer confronting yourself. You confront everybody else who maybe doesn't accept your identity. You make society adjust to you. Now, here's the interesting thing. Every culture, uh, without asking anyone's permission or calling it this, imposes an identity pro process a sense of self. If you grew up in a, in a non-Western part of the world or in a traditional culture, you would have a traditional identity. But it so happens that you live in a Westernized part of the world. You consume Western media. You didn't ask for it. Well, you're, you're part of the modern identity formation. It's been imposed on you. In modern cultures, it's not like they sat you down and explained this all to you. They said, hey, you know, back in the day, they're traditional identities, but we want to give 17 reasons why this is a more compelling approach to life. No, no, the way culture gets put on us, it's through stories. We drown in the stories that tell us the same thing over and over again. And yeah, you especially got to look at the major movie producers for children, young people. We're thinking Disney, we're thinking Pixar, we're thinking Marvel. The same story keeps repeating itself. You, you drown in the stories, fantastic beasts. The plot issue is, if you are a witch or a wizard, but you don't practice it, it creates an obscurial, a, a repressed witch and wizard. It's disastrous for you not to be true to yourself and to act that out, disaster. Uh, probably the most uh, powerful little snapshot of the transition from traditional to modern identity is in Elsa of Frozen. We've sung it a thousand times. Be the good girl. You always have to be. Conceal. She's trying out traditional identity. No, it's not working for her. But let it go. It's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. Because you're creating yourself now. I'm free. Okay, we drown in the stories. They tell us we just get we get brainwashed by the culture. Now I'm going to this whole series. We're suggesting there's a better place to find identity, not inwards and not outwards, but upwards. But I just want to do a quick critique on what what some of the problems are with modern identity. Five things. Number one, 
our desires contradict each other. It's a myth that you look inside yourself and you peel back the layers, peel back the layers, and then eventually you get the very core of yourself, and you're like, I've distilled the essential me. Because what you find when you go into yourself, or if you've lived long enough, is you go into yourself and you find contradictory desires. I love two people. What to do? Not me. I'm just talking about what do you do? Oh, sorry, I love one person. I'm, I'm sure on that. Francis Spufford, he writes this. He says, each person is a being whose wants make no sense. They don't harmonize. Their desires deep down are discordantly arranged so that you truly want to possess and you truly want not to at the very same time. You're equipped for farce or even tragedy more than you are for happy endings. And um, I don't know what happened to Freud, but we all agreed with him for a time. Freud said, hang on, there's different parts of you. There's the id, there's the ego, the super ego, but be, watch that id. The id is this unsociable chaos, these selfish desires within yourself, this rampant desire for power, for love, for comfort, for control. And you'll find these desires are vying for each other. They'll strangle each other to death if they have to. We've kind of pushed that aside, so don't listen to Freud. Actually, there is no unsociable chaos inside you. Just go deep within and you'll find, you'll find that essential you. But it's not true because you find yourself pulled in, in many different directions. And, and maybe you go to therapy for six months now, and I'm, I go to therapy personally once a month, just so you know, so I'm pro-therapy, but, but you discover yourself. We'll go back five years later, you're gonna discover something different because we're in flux. The second problem with the modern identity approach is we cannot validate ourselves. I mean, we know, you know this already. You, you, a child comes into the world, you, you leave a child in a cot, you say, child, find yourself. And then you pick up this child and you look in its eyes and you give it a name. That child for all its life will be psychologically damaged because that child finds its identity by looking in the eyes of another. Find out who you are by looking in the eyes of another. The we receive, we're... we're um, we irreducibly social beings. You cannot validate yourself for very long. I mean, monologues don't generate an identity. Identity comes out of dialogue. You can't say, hey, it doesn't matter what you think of me. I know what I think of me. Yeah, try that. See how long it works. I mean, to use one of the biblical terms, we need someone to bless us because we cannot bless ourselves. Perhaps an obvious sign that traditional identities don't work is if it worked, why would we need to become activists to insist that other people agree with us about who we are? Seems like a very fragile self. It's like, I will, I will not rest till everybody agrees with me that I am who I believe in my inner core to be. It's like, I'm not saying you're wrong about what you discerned about yourself, but but why do you need everybody to agree with you? Um, my point is, it doesn't work so well. Val you cannot validate yourself. A third problem with modern identities is that this pressure to be one of a kind awesome is crushing. See, traditional identities were about fitting in. By the way, I'm not pro-traditional identities. I'm just showing you the difference. The modern identity is not about fitting in. It's about standing out. You have to be brilliant. You have to be beautiful. You have to be hip. 
you have to be original, and they've got to think it of you too. Go ahead. Welcome to life in the Western world. You drop that on, you drop that on teenagers, 20-somethings, and what you're going to see, a spike in anxiety and depression because it's a crushing expectation upon a human being to not only create yourself, but to create something so awesome. Fourth thing about modern identity that doesn't work is that society tears apart when self-expression is above service. Everybody is like, I will express me and everybody else must accept who I am. It leads to social chaos. People are less willing now to serve and give than ever before. There's no such thing as covenant relationships anymore. You never forsake your happiness for a church or for your family. You see, where self is more important than relationships, social ties and institutions erode. Marriages and families weaken. Society fragments into warring factions. I think of two books that have come out the last few years of women who were fairly Christian in their approach and, um, and, and basically had, they were married to a man with children and then, and then even wrote about it in triumphant ways, trying to help everybody else live their lives. They'd had some battles, but they'd come through. And then the next book they write, they've, women, these women have left their husbands, they've met the woman of their dreams. And they write this triumphant book, and then you read the reviews, and society is going, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. What courage to be true to yourself. And you read the books, and I just wondered to myself, has anybody interviewed the, the ex-husband and the children? What happened to those people in all of this? So if everybody's into self-expression, nobody's into thinking about other people, it, it's a brutal world that we live in. It's a polarizing world. I'm not saying I've got the solutions here, but you can see where I'm going. And then number five, society arbitrarily demands what desires to attach identity to. Society arbitrarily uh, demands what desires to attach identity to. So if you're gonna look in, society's still in your ear saying, you know what, if you're trying to find yourself, look at these desires. See, in traditional identity, a woman is told, look in, and she sees her desire for family, and she sees her desire for career skyrocketing success. But there's a little bit of a tension between the two. Uh, traditional society says, put the career aside, you go family. What, is, what does modern identity say? Don't even think about it. Put family aside, go wild career success. You, you're basically, you're, being, you're still reading the scripts of the culture on which desi desires you're meant to, you're meant to latch onto. I mean, our society says a primary clue to find out who you really are is look at your sexual desires. So for millennia, I mean, we've got the written record now. For millennia, in the scriptures, in the ancient philosophies, sex was something you did. Now sex is something you are. It's the clue to who you really are. It's the truest part of you. Looked in. Look at your sexual desires, that's you. That, that's your identity. And um, the gospel says, no, no, no. That's not the essential you. That's not the essential you. And then, and then the, the one that's really popular in the last 10 years, gender identity. Gender identity. And um, 
I'm not doing an in-depth analysis here, and like you, I still got a lot to learn on this. But um, one of the things I find intriguing about the gender identity possibilities is they're all, they're mostly based on a presupposition that there is a pure male and a pure female in the world. And the pure male feels strong, assertive, independent, competitive, rational, and they act out of this seamlessly. And there's also the pure female. Uh, she is nurturing, empathetic, sensitive, compassionate, emotionally expressive. So you start off with these two stereotypes. You call them into existence, and then you defy them. And you go, ha, those are terror, those are oppressive. Uh, and, and then if you can't identify with these pure male or pure female, not a problem. You know, there's other, other possibilities. The problem is that those stereotypes are figments of our imagination. They're certainly not biblical. The Bible doesn't support uh, gender stereotypes. I've, I've written a book on this. It's, I'm, I'm an expert on this particular point. There, you know, actually, when I, I was looking through the list again, you know, which one I... I find myself connecting with gender queer. On this point, it says, uh, you know, you feel yourself a combination of masculine and feminine. <laughs> There's times when I feel nurturing and empathetic and sensitive and compassionate. Other times I feel strong, assertive. And then I also connected a bit with gender fluid because gender fluid says, you know, one day you're this, the next day you're that. I was like, you know what, actually I'm not gender queer. I think I'm gender fluid. <laughs> but, but I'm making the point here. Our culture is finding can I put it like this, fairly arbitrary things, and saying, this is the clue to who you are. And um, if, if we lived in another culture and we went on the inward journey to find out who we are, our culture would be whispering something else in our ear about, about who we are. And I just wonder if there is a more stable, true, solid, enduring self that we can find. And I think that the mental health crisis that seems to be tracking with the um, multiplicity of gender options, and uh, it's not working. And I'm so delighted that, that we're starting this adventure through finding our identity in God. Because, because you can look inward to self for identity, you can look outward to others for identity, but the gospel says, no, look upward to God for identity. Look upward to God for identity. Not your desires or your duties, but God's revelation. And it's God who creates you. You don't create you. You discover you. And you discover you in his eyes. He validates you. Jessie, who preaches often, and she's had a boy called Samuel. Cool name. We'll get them, Gaz and Jessie back soon enough. But um, she said that she had some part of, she had a self-hatred. I think that's how she described it. She was in church one day. She said she'd heard stuff about new identity in Christ. She says, but she was singing and she was worshiping Jesus, focused on Jesus. And suddenly she had a flash of herself in his eyes. She said she was instantly transformed and became another person. Now, I don't think it always works that quickly. I think it's a process and it's a bit of back and forth. But that's what we're praying in the series, that you see yourself in his eyes. So what I want to do for the... Another part of my message, I'm going to rush through it, is the, what does the Bible say about identity? And, and roughly speaking, if you look at the Bible story, there are three parts to the story. Part one, we call it the first creation. This is our original glorious identity. 
Genesis chapter 1. We are made in the image of God. Part two to the story is the fall within creation. Oh goodness, our, our identity is properly damaged. Genesis chapter 3. But the gospel, part three, we become new creations in Christ. We have a renewed, glorious identity. And the best chapter on our renewed, glorious identity is Ephesians chapter one in the New Testament, which is why it's gonna be our anchoring passage for the rest of the year. We're gonna look at other parts of the Bible, but we're gonna look at it through the magnifying glass of Ephesians chapter one. But what I wanna do just for the rest of my little time with you is focus in on first creation, our original glorious identity. And listen to Genesis chapter one. Let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And um, the first thing to, to discover about yourself is that even if you're not a Christian, you are made in the image of God. And that's something to bank. It's something to build on. But, but what does it mean to be in the image of God? It means five or six things. I'm going to fly through them. Number one, it means that we are royalty. It means that we are royalty. So the first thing we discover is in the ancient world, every tribe or nation had a king. Many of these kings, particularly the, the massive empires, on the throne would be inscribed the words, the image of God. There was one person in the tribe who represented God himself. He was the image of God. He was, in a sense, God's under ruler. He was the earthly counterpart to the divine God that they worshiped. So when the Bible says that every human is the image of God, it's saying that you are a special representative of God to the world. It means that you are royal and you are created to rule. Now, of course, the word rule has got a bad vibe in our time, you know, dominion and, 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 and asserting control of others. But in the Bible, the word rule and shepherding, they are used synonymously. To rule is to, to bring out the full potential and to look after that which is under your rule. Uh, Psalm 8 says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, what are mortals that you should think of us? Mere humans that you should care for us. King David is praying this. For you made us a little lower than God and you crowned us with glory and honor. Now, you may have heard of original sin. Original sin. But have you heard about original glory? See, as a human, you are crowned with glory and honor. You are a living representation of a living God. Put your shoulders back. Dignity. The second thing about being in God's image means humility. It means humility. I mean, which is more important, the sun or the moon? Well, the sun is the right answer. Because the moon, it shines on a full moon night, but all of that light is a mere reflection. It's an image of the sun. To be in an image means that there is a source that is greater than you. <laughs> There's a source that's greater than you. Now, modern identities puts you on the throne of your own life. 
it suggests you're a sun that out of your being radiates light. Uh, New Age spirituality, quite popular. Not everyone in New Age, New Spiritual Consciousness will use this wording, but, but you are Christ, or you are God, and you need to define, discover your own divinity. You need a, a revelation of your divinity. And uh, the idea that you're the image of God dis- disproves and denies all of that. D- denies all of that. You are, you are merely a reflection of something else. But what an awesome opportunity to be the reflection of someone as amazing as God. And then the thirdly, what does it mean to be the image of God? It doesn't only mean um, royalty and humility. It means responsibility. Responsibility. Uh, you know, look after creation, look after the plants, the animals, natural resources, bring out its potential. Um, climate change, ecological um, disaster, the ravaging of species. This is something that every human should be very concerned about because our primary mandate was look after this planet. And Christians should especially be concerned about this because we're reading the primary mandate. Human beings are meant to rule and shepherd creation. And um, what a stuff up that we're making. But there are things we can do. There are things that we can do. And we're concerned about other species. But, but, But because humans are made in the image of God even though we might be riled at other humans for what they do to the planet, we still have to be concerned about humans too. Some people are more concerned about other species than, than, the, the, than suffering humans. I don't think that that would be possible. And you remember, these humans are made in the image of God. There's much talk nowadays about the inherent value of every life and human rights for all. It's why we tell our children not to act like beasts and we're appalled when humans are treated like animals. So there should be something inside of us that wants to overcome systematic exploitation or extreme poverty because it's beneath God-given dignity. John of Kronstadt. Shh, shh, guys. Shh. Normally I don't mind. I've got five kids. For whatever reason, I'm getting distracted. John of Kronstadt was a 19th century Russian Orthodox priest at a time when alcohol abuse was rampant. None of the priests ventured out of their churches to help the people. They waited for the people to come to them, but John, compelled by love, went out into the streets. He would lift the hungover, foul-smelling people from the gutter, cradle them in his arms, and say to them these words, this is beneath your dignity. You were meant to house the fullness of God. How many people have come to faith, been awakened to the value of God, and then have been awakened to the value of the vulnerable and the hurting, and then have given their lives to do something to alleviate suffering, because because it's beneath their dignity to experience these circumstances. They are meant to house the fullness of God. And um, I wonder what assignments God is going to give people in signal, for the vulnerable, the vulnerable in the city. God has put us in the city. We're not a church in the suburbs. I just wonder what, the, what some of the vulnerable people in our city that we're meant to be like John of Kronstadt to. And um, I'm not putting it on the church. I'm wondering who God is going to speak to. 
God is going to speak to. I just met Dan this morning. He was in Seaporn yesterday, and he meets someone. <laughs> and uh, all of you, oh, all there. There you are, my man. <laughs> and I uh, had a long conversation with him, led him to Christ, baptized him. Sorry, I, I, he told me his name, but I forgot. What's your name again? Sean, hey? Sean, welcome today. So Sean had a conversation about the gospel, prayed, and they baptized him in that seapoint water, and uh, Sean is here today. Let's give Sean a hand, hey? But, um, but um, the gospel causes you to see people that nobody else does. I've got just a few more things to say. Are you okay? Can I keep going? To be made in God's image means community. Western society, modern identities, hyper-individualized. Genesis 1.26 says, God created them. Male and female, he created them. Um, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when he creates in his image, he builds us for relationship. We cannot thrive on our own. To be an image bearer is to recognize our need for community. We thrive in community. Thrive in community. And, um, and I love that part. It's also male and female. There's this beautiful complementarity and unity of men and women. I watched Barbie, and um, I thought I'd like get something cool out of it, but I was actually, all I got was I got like female terrible stereotypes, and male terrible stereotypes, and nothing else. <laughs> and someone saying, you know, we really should do this together, um, but, but no vision of complementarity. What's it like when men with their strengths and women with their strengths and diversities come together in marriages and leadership teams. Uh, Genesis chapter one, God made them male and female in his image. There's this, it's like men and women together reflect the full spectrum, let me use the word there, of God. I love about Africa. In our savannas, lions and lionesses roar together to show the pride's strength. There's this meme, there's traditional identities that men are the leaders and the, they, they have dominion and the women are domesticated. And then, and then people think that's what the Bible teaches too. No, no, it's not what the Bible teaches. You've got to read it more carefully than that. It's Adam and Eve both called to dominion, both called to raise children. This, and they bring something together, complementarity, uh, and then to be in God's image means compatibility, means compatibility. You know, to be in God's image means of all the creatures, we have got the capacity for connecting to the creator in a relational way. We are made for face-to-face -face relationship with our maker. And that's why Satan, his temptation in Genesis 3, he actually sounds, if you think about it, he's actually promoting a modern identity. He's saying to Adam and Eve, he says, follow the desires of your heart and it'll lead you to finding your true self. Shut your ears to any external voices, even God's. It's the key to authentic living. Become your own God and it'll, it'll open your eyes to who you really are. We're made to look into the face of our maker and find our identity there. 
So I'm right at the end. To be in God's image means that, that royalty, it means humility, it means responsibility, it means community, it means compatibility. And one last one, because I'm a sucker for rhyme, it means redeemability. Redeemability. The Sistine Chapel for a long time was, ce- was celebrated as a genius composition, but it was also widely believed that Michelangelo's coloration was mediocre, too dark, too monochromatic. And yet when they finally rehabilitated those frescoes to their original state, everyone could see the beautiful spring-like colors, pale pinks, apple greens, vivid yellows, sky blues against a background of warm, pearly gray. See, without God, the image has faded. Our glory is damaged, but it is not completely destroyed. It is still redeemable. Jesus, the perfect image of God, comes to reprint his face on our lives. And that will be the theme of our preaching for the next many Sundays. Let's stand up. Let's stand up.